Bienvenidos. This is a podcast that explores Latinx media and culture in its many forms. I am Dr. Rojo Robles. And I am Dr. Rebecca Elsalois. And we are Latinx and Latin American Studies professors at Baruch College in New York City. In this podcast, we will analyze Latinx film, television, literature, art, and cultures. We will consider how these works are perceived, analyze them, and investigate the real-world reflections and implication of that work on Latinx cultures in the U.S. and beyond. Welcome to Latinx Visions. Bienvenidos, bienvenidas, bienvenides. Welcome back, everyone. We've got a new episode for you today, and in this episode, we're going to be discussing the theater works of Dolores Prida. So, who is Dolores Prida? Dolores Prida was born in 1943 in Cuba and died in 2013 in Nueva York. She was a playwright, journalist, critic, screenwriter, poet, translator, director, administrator, and editor. Yeah, that's a lot of hats. <laughs> she was best known for her plays in which she addresses questions of identity, the desire for a better life, a nostalgia for the past, problems with and among social classes, generational differences, and the bilingual and bicultural nature of the U.S. Latinx experience. Prida's plays are recognizable for their portrayals of the bilingual and multicultural experiences of Latinx women. She integrates a range of themes and dramatic forms with popular culture, feminism, satire, and class consciousness to examine Latinx immigrant experiences and problems of identity. Her use of humor, music, and fast-moving scenes provides audiences with entertaining ways of considering the serious problems faced in the Latinx community particularly those, of course, of Latinx women. According to Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor, who was a friend of Prida's, Dolores was a visionary. As a writer, she inspired us to think deeply about our culture. The collection Beautiful Senoritas and Other Plays, published in 1991, contains the plays Beautiful Senoritas, Coser y Cantar, Savings, Pantallas, and Botanica. Today we're going to be discussing two plays from this collection, Coser y Cantar and Botanica. As Latin American theater scholar and editor of Prida's collection, Judith A. Weiss explains, the plays included in this collection mark an evolution from a broad treatment of a variety of problems pertaining to Latino women toward a more individualized focus for some of those same concerns. Over the 12-year period that represented by these five works, 1978 to 1990, the author has not found any easy solution. But she has not tired, either, of airing the problems with humor, a dash of cliché, and unfailing compassion. Latinx theater in New York and the U.S. as a whole is a complex and diverse field encompassing various styles, themes, and cultural influences. However, certain key principles are often associated with the works of teatreros and teatreras, teatreres, in New York. Here are five tenets Prida shares with other Latinx playwrights. The first one, cultural identity. Latinx playwrights and actors often explore their respective communities' experiences, histories, her stories, and traditions. Next up is social justice. Many Latinx plays address issues of social justice and inequality, such as poverty, racism, migration, and political oppression. 
The third one is bilingualism. Many Latino plays are performed in Spanish and English, reflecting the bilingualism and cultural hybridity of Latinx communities in the U.S. So, yeah, that's something we'll see uh, really prevalent in one of the plays we're discussing today, right? Yeah, we're going to see that the, the play that I'm going to be talking about, Cosari Cantar, like, uh, takes very seriously that uh, juxtaposition between languages. Uh, next up is family and relationships. Many Latinx plays explore themes of family, relationships, and personal identity, often reflecting the complex and often conflicting values and expectations of Latinx culture. This is, of course, like uh, very important in botanica. Absolutely, yeah. We'll see. We'll see a lot of examples of that. Yeah. The final point we want to raise today is history and memory. Latinx theater often engages with history and memory using theater yeah, and performance to remember and honor the struggles and achievements in their Caribbean and Latin American homelands and the contribution of Latinx communities in the U.S. All right, so let's give a little background on the two plays that we're covering in particular. So, in Cosari Cantar, Prida writes a psychological drama, or in her words, a one-act bilingual fantasy that looks at how a Cubana living in New York City experiences and is challenged by a diasporic dysfunction that involves cultural gains and losses. The conflicted and divided woman in the play, Ella, and she deal with the repercussion of her or their drive to merge in the city cultural scape while trying to protect her or their Cuban and Latin American heritage and the Spanish language as a whole. In a note, Breed explains that, and I quote, the two women are one and are playing a verbal emotional game of ping pong. Each continuously trespasses on each other's thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. While there are multiple entry points to discuss to this place, I will focus on how New York City is built conceptually as a diasporic city and in the spirit of the play, voy a entrar en un diálogo crítico bilingüe con el intelectual Alberto Sandoval Sánchez. The other play we're going to discuss is Botanica. And Botanica tells the story of three generations of Puerto Rican women living in New York City who struggle with cultural and generational gaps. Millie, short for Milagros, returns from college in New Hampshire with the desire to leave El Barrio and start her own life. Eventually, she chooses to help her mother and grandmother, mixing her family's cultural heritage with the technological skills she acquired during her education. I'll be looking at the transculturation that Millie experiences and how her journey mimics that of a pendulum, going from one extreme to the other before finding a way in which her multiple identities can coexist, and how New York is the perfect setting for this transcultural experience. At the end of the episode, we will wrap up with some recommendations, as always, for other plays by Latinx authors from New York City in which the city plays an important role. So today I want to start uh, talking about New York City as an interior scape in Coser y Cantar. Coser y Cantar presents uh, New York City as a complex and multifaceted place that is both a source of opportunity and struggles for Cuban immigrants and Latinx women at large. The city is represented more as a state of mind than a physical location. The dual character, she, ella, never leaves her apartment. In part, this is because she's hesitant about what her purpose in the city is. She says, yes, 
One day soon I have to get my caca together and get out there and do something, definitely, seriously. She asks herself what she can do about the social political problems she encounters and how she fits within the urban fabric as a Latina. The character has moved several times without finding a place where she doesn't feel lost. And I'm gonna quote the play again. Sometimes the place I go to was the wrong place, to be sure. All I have to do was choose another place and go to it. Da gusto llegar al lugar que se va sin perder el camino. I, I, I just love the, the bilingualism already uh, from the one character, right? It's two characters who are one character, but they, they both engage in this biling, bilingual conversation. Yeah, and each language is also like represented different facets of uh, her personality. Yes. Yeah. El crítico y profesor puertorriqueño Alberto Sandoval Sánchez hace un análisis pertinente de la dinámica psicológica que organiza la obra de Prida. Él dice, la relación entre ella y she en este momento es una separación y una división del ser, una ruptura dramática y un deseo de asumir una toma de posición que concretice la doble naturaleza de la coherencia psíquica de ella. La psiquis de ella se ve dividida entre el ego y el alter ego en dos órdenes simbólicos culturales y en dos planos imaginarios, la mitad latina y la mitad anglosajona. Queda claro que esa dualidad plural no es una búsqueda de una separación total. Por un lado, es una búsqueda por establecer un puente que entrecruce e intersecte fronteras culturales con la intención de reinstalar un sujeto bicultural que produzca una posible resolución o reconciliación parcial entre las dos. I would like to add to that analysis that New York City frames the conversation she maintains with herself throughout the play. The city works more as a sociocultural ghost that the character or characters, if we want, respond to and is afraid of. In particular, she's terrified by muggers and the levels of crimes in the streets. One of Prida's estate's instructions, for instance, reads, Loud gunshots are heard outside, then police sirens, loud noises, screams, screeches, both women get very nervous and upset. They run to the window and back, not knowing what to do. It is crucial to historically contextualize these texts from 1981. Yeah, I think that that's absolutely important here, right? Because uh, an audience from today might have a different perspective on this scenario. Although at the same time, and I'm going to be talking about discourses about crime, those discourses in many ways have to return to the city. Mm -hmm. yeah? So they're very relevant to how people are talking about crime and specifically the current administration. Yeah. During the 1980s, New York City was characterized by significant socioeconomic and urban decay. The city experienced increased crime, poverty, and unemployment rates, increasing social unrest and political tensions. Urban decay was also evident in the city infrastructure, with many buildings, roads, and public spaces falling into disrepair. The deterioration of these neighborhoods led to the displacement of many residents and the loss of businesses and cultural institutions. The lack of investment and neglect from the city, from the state, and the federal government led to a vicious cycles of decline, which persisted for many years, impacting the city's social and economic fabric. I see what you're saying here about the the return of some of these 
these issues, right? Yeah, it is, uh, what we're looking at right now is in a way is, a, is a, uh, the return of that cycle of uh, neglect, but of the return also of the criminalization of the poor and the criminali criminalization of uh, people of color. Yes. Another point to present here is how the media played a significant role in shaping public perceptions of the socioeconomic and urban decay in New York City. Yeah, and politicians as well, of course. The media often portray black and brown communities as criminals and portray urban decay as a result of their supposed inherent criminality. This fuel negative stereotypes and prejudice against black, Asian, and Latinx people and perpetuated a narrative of fear and danger in the city mm -hmm. that in many ways continues to this day. Yeah. The media's focus on crime and violence further exacerbated tensions and reinforced the view that residents of these neighborhoods were responsible for their own demise. As a person who is constantly aware of the news cycle and is reading mainstream publication in Spanish and English, the Cuban lady in Prida's play is hence influenced into perceiving the city as a threat. Beyond New York, the audience discovers that she is also concerned about nuclear war and the civil wars in Central America. Let's remember that this play was uh, uh, produced or written and written uh, during the Cold War, yeah, and during yeah. a very intense period of uh, uh, civil wars in Latin America. Absolutely. Yeah. So at uh, uh, this topic, feeling permeates the play. A question lingers in the play. To what extent New York City provides a sense of belonging for those in the diaspora? And how do Latinas thrive within these socioeconomic and media alarms? I think these are really great questions and uh, something we see revisited when we get to Botanica, which was published in 1990, so almost a, a decade, decade later. later yeah. And we're still seeing... Um, while there are some changes to the, the characters' perceptions, we are still seeing the kind of sense of belonging is a, still a struggle for for the characters in in that play as well. And it manifests itself a little bit differently. And I think the same could be true as the 21st century. Now we're, we're into the 2020s, that there is still that struggle, but it might not look identical, right? There, there's different elements that are highlighted. Yeah, there's definitely a continuation between the two plays. And again, like we're like, and actually we're talking about these plays because they're relevant to our present as well. Yeah. Yeah. Frida organizes her play as an interior monologue written as a dialogue yeah, between she and ella. Uh, this playwriting technique conveys a character's inner thoughts, uh, feelings, and perception. Yeah, so we're getting into her mind. Mm -hmm. uh, it works as a form of narrative that presents the conflicting thoughts of this woman as they occur without any external commentary or interpretation. Yeah, there's no other character besides herself. Right. Well, I mean, maybe arguably the city, but yes. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. The city is kind of like they're like framing this conversation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. This interior monologue lets the reader directly experience the character thoughts and emotions about the city, about New York City. It provides insight into the character's psyche and motivations and reveals a critical appreciation of the city that might otherwise be hidden. 
Ultimately, here or their experiences highlight the importance of creating community and the power and need of human connection, particularly for those who may feel isolated or marginalized in New York City. Again, something very relevant today, especially when we talk about COVID and how isolated people were over the last several years. Yeah, and how it affected, how COVID affected our psyche psyche and in a specific uh, black and brown communities. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm going to move on to a second category that I want to explore today is New York City as a bilingual city. Okay. Right. A topic that we already started like uh, discussing. Yeah. Bilingualism is a prominent feature in Cantar. It reflects the experiences of many Cuban and, of course, Latinx immigrants who navigate their life bilingually or in a bilingual environment. The play incorporates and fluctuates between Espanol and English with the same character switching between the two languages throughout the play. Mm-hmm. Each language becomes a facet of the human woman, as we were like discussing before. English is perceived as an easy entry point to a consumerist society and a globalized culture. English also stands for a sense of self-actualization, mm. being in the world in the present. Right. Bilingualism is also used as a tool of resistance and empowerment in the play. The character of Ella, for example, uses her bilingualism to challenge the dominant culture's assumptions about Latinx immigrants. She contests or argues that you don't need to abandon your language and ancestral culture, in her case, the Cuban culture, uh, uh, while in the city. To keep speaking Spanish is a form of asserting a cultural background that mainstream culture yeah, wants to keep pacified at best or fully erased at worst. And interestingly, this was not a, a mainstream mentality. I think there was still in the early 80s this idea of like, I need to acculturate to the language and and almost lose that that previous identity and and Preda's pushing back against that. Yeah, this is a discussion that I I, uh, constantly have with my students and many students feel that that is still the case. Yeah, Mm. there's like the, that English is the lingua franca and the only way to really like start to feel that you belong into the U.S. is by like rejecting Spanish or rejecting your culture, yeah, your cultural background, yeah. Uh, traigo de nuevo a colación el análisis de Alberto Sandoval Sánchez. Chi uh, impone a ella su realidad, su lenguaje, su orden de las cosas al modo angloamericano. Chi no está dispuesta a entender el problemático diario vivir de ella en Estados Unidos, ni su historia cultural, ni las ausencias de ellas condensadas en su lenguaje, en sus objetos y en sus memorias traídas de un país de origen. Consecuentemente, en ambos componentes culturales, en el yo de ella, en vez de lograrse una comunicación, y podemos asumir que para ella comunicarse implica la total asimilación, se producen modos de resistencia y de lucha política que le hacen fluctuar entre la fijación y el desplazamiento, la centralización y la marginalidad, la aceptación y el rechazo, la reaparición y la desaparición, la lejanía y la contiguidad. Expanding on what Sandoval Sanchez presents, bilingualism in the play reflects a Cuban immigrant's mental process and overall psyche, constantly switching between languages and cultural contexts. The play highlights the challenges and complexities of living in a bilingual environment where language can be both a source of pride and a barrier to communication and economic mobility. 
It could be said that Frida stages the, lingu the linguistic process of translanguaging. Translanguaging in literature, or in this case theater, can take various forms, such as using different languages and dialogue, incorporating code switching or borrowing words from different languages to enrich the narratives. Prida's text presents Espanol and Inglés side by side, questioning the linguistic hierarchies of the city and the U.S. at large. Mm -hmm. Prida uses translanguaging to describe the fluid and dynamic ways multilingual individuals use their entire linguistic repertoire to communicate and understand language, and in this case, a city. I really like this term translanguaging, right? Be especially how it applies to this play. I think we we see it a little bit in Botanica, but Botanica is a much more Spanish dominant play. Uh, but you'll see when I get into that conversation a bit later that there is some bilingualism and and its flow is very natural. It seems quite organic to to the situation. Yeah. And in many ways, uh, this is something that I remember we talked about before, right? It's like how like Mili in a way, like, there's a lot of connections between um, Mili and she, Ella, yes. right? And in many ways, Mili's having the the same like uh, inner conflicts that she and Ella uh, present in this uh, previous play. The only difference there being that she has her family surrounding her, whereas she and Ella is, are <laughs> alone. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So the last point I want to bring today regarding New York City in Cosa de Encantar is how the city is uh, uh, formed or constructed through media and culture. Yeah. Through its exploration of the city's cultural landscape, the play highlights the ways in which the city can both inspire and challenge its residents and offers a powerful reflection on the realities of life in New York City. As I mentioned, media plays a significant role in the character's life throughout the play. From television to magazine, the dual character, she ella, is bombarded with images and messages that shape her or their understanding of themselves and the world around them. Media is such an intense presence in her life that she mentions that overwhelmed, she threw the television out of the window at some point. <laughs> I'm gonna read like that section from the play. Ella dice, si por lo menos tuviera el televisor, podría ver una película o algo, pero no. She says, forget about the TV set. Ella dice, tuviste que tirarlo por la ventana y lo peor no es que me quedé sin televisor, no, lo peor es, es el caso por daños y prejuicios que tengo pendiente. She says, I don't regret a thing. This exchange and others in which she and Ella talked about women images in magazines demonstrate how her vulnerable mental state is affected by, by what she is consuming media-wise. Intertextuality is a literary technique that refers to how one text is influenced by or refers to another. In the play, intertextuality describes how the media influence us in the city. Intertextuality can take many forms, including direct quotations, allusions, reference, and parodies. In her linguistic battle, Prida confronts boleros and pop, romantic longing and sexual needs, Olga Guillot, and Barbara Streisand. She also references the city's independent art house movie circuit by name-dropping the German filmmaker Rainer Berner Fassbinder and the now infamous New Yorker Woody Allen. While different directors in terms of poetics and audiovisual language both have used their movies to portray sexual neurosis and gender constraint in Western patriarchal societies and the alienation of intellectual. Frida echoes these same concerns as well. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Intersexuality also creates a sense of continuity and interconnectedness within the city. By referencing other texts, Brida creates a network of shared meanings and ideas linking her work to a larger body of literature and media that has come before it and her. Mm -hmm. This can help to create a sense of tradition or lineage within a work while also allowing authors to explore new ideas and perspectives. Como acertadamente concluye Sandoval Sánchez, como resultado de este choque cultural, el sujeto de la latina o latino está consciente en todo momento de convivir en dos, y yo aquí diría varios, territorios socioculturales. Dolores Prida en Coser y Cantar ha logrado a cabalidad trenzar territorios culturales mediante el diseño escénico, la utilería, el vestuario, la acción dramática y la atención lingüística al presentar ante los ojos del espectador el proceso dialéctico de la dualidad unitaria del estar, del ser latino, bilingüe y bicultural. Y aquí, otra vez yo diría multicultural en los Estados Unidos. Uh -huh. As we can see in this place, intersexuality is a powerful literary and playwriting technique that allows Brida to create new meanings and connections between different artistic works. This technique often adds depth and complexity to a text by connecting it to other works and highlighting its place in a larger, borderless, multicultural tradition. Yeah, I, this is something that's not unique to Coser y Cantar, even among Prida's works, right? Um, we see this also in her play Beautiful Senoritas, which is the, the title play of the collection work we're going from here. Um, in that play, you see the use of music and songs uh, of different genres from different uh, backgrounds. You see uh, television programs and advertisements and the influence that those hold over the characters in the play. And there's even uh, a beauty pageant that comes into, into the conversation as yet another form of performance within the performance. So it, it's something she played with quite a bit. Y a la imagen de la mujer en el, en el media. Mm -hmm. sí. Exacto. Overall, the presence of media in Cosari Cantar highlights the complex role that media plays in the lives of Latinx women in the United States. While media can provide a source of empowerment and connection, it can also perpetuate harmful stereotypes and limit the opportunities available to women. All right, so next up, we're going to talk about botanica and and sort of this, I, I guess I'm going to call it, for lack of a better term, a sort of transcultural pendulum. So let's define that first. You know, what is transculturation? So transculturation is a process of cultural change marked by the influx of new cultural elements and the loss or alteration of existing ones, whereby an individual continually learns and expands their cultural skills and understanding. It's not simply acquiring a new culture or losing a previous culture, but rather the creation of new cultural phenomena in which blending these cultures produces something entirely new. A common example, which I think is also relevant to this play, is Santeria, which stems from West African Yoruba and, and other practices and Spanish Catholicism, right? It's sort of its own thing out of two uh, previous cultural practices. In Botanica, our main character Milagros, or Millie as she now prefers, struggles with her own cultural identity. She grew up in El Barrio with her Spanish-speaking grandmother and mother. 
Her grandmother owns a botanica, which is an herb shop where they sell spiritual cures, divine the future, and concoct cures and remedies for a number of ailments. This is Milagros's life before she heads off to college, right? This is what she knows. And there's even a point where she talks about having never left El Barrio, or very rarely. The play takes place in this botanica immediately following Millie's graduation from what we can assume is Dartmouth College. Um, She references it being an elite college in New Hampshire and (laughs) process of elimination as someone who went to school in in New Hampshire. Uh, It was was definitely Dartmouth, right? Now, I lived in in New Hampshire for over a decade, although um, in the early 2000s, not the early 90s. It's a very white state, (laughs) And um, I think this really impacted Millie's college experience, right? She speaks to the fact that she initially dealt with a lot of prejudice as a result of her ethnic and cultural differences from the other students in the school. As she says to Ruen, Tú no entiendes, Ruen. No fue fácil, ¿sabes? Llegar sola a un lugar donde no conoces a nadie. Yo no había salido del barrio como quien dice, y caer ahí en New Hampshire en una universidad donde casi todo el mundo era tan diferente a mí. It wasn't easy, believe me. Tuve que bregar con muchas cosas. Lo del nombre fue una de las más fáciles. Milagros en el barrio puede ser común y corriente. Miracles in New Hampshire? No way. So here we see the extremes that Milagros experienced in her journey to realizing who she is and who she wants to be. So imagine that pendulum, right? These are the outer points of that journey. Solo el barrio and this elite college in New Hampshire. Throughout the play, Milagros goes through a number of experiences that bring her to a place where she feels as though she has not completely sacrificed her culture, but has instead created something new that she can bring to the table that is uniquely hers. It combines her lived experiences within both cultures. So we'll go back to that bilingualism that you were talking about, the English versus Spanish. When she returns from college, we can see the ways in which language has influenced our main character's views on life. She's now Millie instead of Milagros, and she defaults to English in many conversations. Uh, As professor and scholar Wilma Feliciano explains in her article, Language and Identity in Three Plays by Dolores Prida, the protagonist Milagros Castillo personifies the friction and fusion of life between contiguous cultures. Her double name averts to her conflicted identity. Milagros began calling herself Millie at college because, she observed, Milagros Castle isn't a great name in English. It's funny to translate the last name as well. <laughs> <laughs> she even feels that she needs to translate her name yeah. Yeah, in order to be legible. Yeah, for the for her uh, white peers. Yeah, know, in exactly. The college. It's interesting because, you know, the idea of someone translating their name in English into its meaning, uh, it's not the same, right? So, like you, you don't get that question. Oh, this is your name. It's just acceptable. But yeah. Milagros, what does that mean? What 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 is that name? Right? It's not like, I don't know like Jose and Joe, like Mm. you can see those equivalencies. Next up is individualism versus community. In New Hampshire, Millie has learned to survive using a sort of U.S. American individualism. This contrasts with the communal nature of her Puerto Rican influence upbringing. This conflict causes an internal struggle for Milagros to reconcile upward mobility and family loyalty. She questions whether she can have both. 
and also like community uh, uh, loyalty. Yeah, here yeah. we see like in the play, like how like although the the family is kind of like the unit of that community or the core of that community, there's also other members that are really uh, uh, involved, right, mm -hmm. in the construction of uh, of a common like social frame. For yeah. Them. yeah, and the botanica is a perfect uh, location for that because you have members of that community coming and going from the location as well. And who are interested in the preservation of the botanica. Mm -hmm. And finally, I have capitalism versus spiritualism. Now, Millie went to college for business administration, and that's what she's pursuing as a career. Her goal is to get a job at Chase Bank and move downtown. She wants nothing to do with the botanica because, in her eyes, it's not profitable. We also notice in the place how, like, she's also ashamed, yeah, of the botanica and what it represents, right? Uh, there's like uh, uh, at the beginning we see that that she's like a, a shame of uh, of her Puerto Rican culture, mm -hmm. yeah, and she even like decides not to invite uh, her abuela and mama to the graduation because they're gonna bring pasteles and comida puertorriqueña, uh, and she prefers not to deal with that, yeah. yeah. And the botanica when she comes back. The botanica in many ways represents something similar, like a, a place or, and, and cultural practices that she's a, a, a shame of. Yes, yeah, which is something she didn't experience prior to leaving. Milagros cringes at the approach her grandmother Heno takes with her customers, right? Allowing them to run a tab and pay later. And she bristles with annoyance when her grandmother uses myth and magic to help cure people's ailments, right? She's come, become very, you know separated from that that community. She struggles to reconcile the modern business practices she's learned in school with the ancient beliefs of her grandmother's medicinal herb shop. But my question is, why does it have to be versus, right? All of those those parallels I presented were in a versus. And, and Prida is posing that question mm -hmm. as well as a, as a playwright, yeah, and, and as a creator of this particular universe, like that is why do we have to think? Why do they have to be uh, separated? As a, yeah, as a how the uh, why they have to be exclusionary? Yes. So, like, is Millie unable to find a way in which her two worlds can come together? Can she not create a transcultural identity that will serve her better than either of these two separate identities seem to be serving her at that moment? Millie, as we meet her in the beginning of the play, seems determined to assimilate into an individualistic and capitalist-driven society. But after her grandmother falls ill, we see a shift. This shift suggests an ability to resolve the conflict she experienced between the two cultures. As Feliciano goes on to suggest, the play attempts to reconcile two languages, two cultures, and two visions of the world into a cohesive whole. And I think that reconciliation is what anyway I think it seems that Milagros needs to feel whole again, right? She needs this reconciliation to feel whole again. This cohesion uh, that Feliciano talks about, uh, it will be worth it to also like uh, mention that uh, it's a cohesion that also accepts difference. Right, that they don't need to be the same and they don't need to necessarily match. Yes. Yeah. But the Milagros can be a part of both cultural dynamics. Yeah. Uh, the symbolism for this resolution of identities can be seen in the merging of past and present. Right. At one point, we have Millie rearranging the Botanica. The scene depicts a mixture of song and incantation with a sort of 
computer speak, if you will, right? It shows Millie combining her two worlds by applying modern business practices to the management of the medicinal herb shop. It shows that these two things can, in fact, coexist. And at the end of the play, we see Millie typing her grandmother's herbal remedies into the computer. This symbolizes the mutually beneficial relationship between these old beliefs and traditions and the new methods and technologies. We see Milagros being open to preserving the Botanica and also Heno being open to the new technology. There's also a great line about buffaloes in here, but I'll, I'll come back to that in a moment. By the conclusion of the play, we see both Millie and Heno as more complex and complete characters. And in terms of Millie's transcultural journey, we see that she has achieved, as Feliciano suggests, a balanced perspective that encompasses both polarities. One thing also that uh, I found like, really uh, interesting and appealing from this place is the idea of creating an archive that allows for cultural preservation. Yeah, so the idea of the the uh, although technology, yeah, at, at the beginning seems to be like a threat for the older uh, generation. At the end, they notice, yeah, that is actually the tool that is allowing them to preserve their culture, the, to preserve their their ways of understanding the world. I love that you bring that up because that's going to tie into our fourth episode of this season. We will be revisiting the concept of archives at that point. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and now, as I mentioned, I would come back to this idea of the buffalo. So let's take a minute to do that before I wrap up. Where do the buffaloes come into the story and what do they mean? So we first hear about the buffaloes from a character named Pepe El Indio. Pepe is identified as a, quote, homeless alcoholic and philosopher who wanders the neighborhood, end quote. <laughs> Early on in the play, he tells another character, Ruben, not to let them kill your buffaloes. It doesn't specify who them is, but, you know, it, in this moment, it's unclear if Ruben is simply placating him or if he understands what Pepe is getting at when he replies, don't worry, chief, I'm keeping an eye on them. So, like, what exactly does this mean? I did a little bit of research into this topic, and according to the Intertribal Buffalo Council, Native American tribal histories, cultures, traditions, and spiritual lives all connected deeply to the buffalo in a reciprocal relationship. Before the arrival of the Europeans in North America, there were an estimated 30 to 60,000 buffalo in what would become the United States. And by 1900, the population had dropped to only the hundreds. So why does this matter and how does it connect with the play? The dramatic decrease in the buffalo population was due in large part to the U.S. destroying the buffalo population to subjugate the people. The loss of the buffalo led to the loss of many indigenous practices, negatively affected the diet of the native people, and impacted the values, beliefs, and practices that they had long held. So when Pepe El Indio tells Ruben not to let them kill your buffalo, or when he complains to Don Doña Heno that they are killing our buffalo, and when he tells Milagros that she must protect your little buffalo, what does he mean? Who are they? Now, the suggestion here, of course, is that they are the colonizers. They are those who have stolen the land, but also the language, culture, and traditions. Millie is at risk of losing her buffalo, but as Pepe assures her, don't worry, you're safe here. Yes, indeed, because Doña Heno has her ceiba tree and nothing can bring it down. 
He may have lost all of his buffalo, but he's telling Millie not to give up or not to give in so that she can save her own buffalo. Millie doesn't really understand what's happening during this interaction, but by the end of the play, a realization has dawned on her. When the real estate developer calls with yet another offer to buy her grandmother's building, Millie tells them, my buffaloes are not for sale. In other words, she's not giving up who she is. She's not giving in to the colonizer. She may be bringing some of what she learned into her future, if anything, but that's only to save her metaphorical buffaloes, right? It's only to save La Botanica. It's great how like Brida also like uh, connects uh, Puerto Rican culture to other like indigenous uh, societies in what is now the United States. Uh, that is very like refreshing because it's, it's creating uh, politics and alliances, yeah, with other marginalized groups mm -hmm. in the in the U.S. Yeah, beyond the Puerto Ricans, of course. Exactly, and and addressing the multiple communities who have been oppressed by those European colonizers, right? This is something I have noticed, yeah, in in Caribbean and Latin American uh, playwrights, uh, writers, and in general in Latin American cultures, uh, but in a specific also within uh, discourses about nation building is that even though there's an acceptance, yeah, or uh, or an awareness of the African element in our cultures, in our Caribbeans and Latin American cultures. At times, yeah, the indigenous uh, heritage is uh, centralized, mm -hmm. centralized on, and kind of like the Africanidad is pushed to those side, right? There's something of that, yeah, in this play when uh, with Pepe eh, El Indio kind of like representing that commentary on colonialism. And although La Botanic is actually a, a site of Africanness, ness yeah, yes. African culture, yeah, when discussing yeah, the processes of colonialism, yeah, kind of like that uh, aspect, yeah, that cultural aspect get erased or at least silenced, mm -hmm. right? The family isn't explicitly stated to be uh, Afro-Boricua either, but there's a lot of allusion to that in the cultural practices that they engage in because of the botanica, because of the the engagement with the, the santos and with the, the Yoruba practices and all of this that, that kind of come into the botanica itself. There's allusion to that. Yeah, um, and it's, it is how like the uh, Africanidad tend to be uh, marginalized even within discourses that are critiquing colonialism, mm -hmm. right? And this, uh, um, this is something that happens within the play, but it's not particular to these plays. It's something that happens generally, yeah, in the cultural production of Latin America, in the cultural production of Puerto Rico and the Caribbean. And it's important to note how it happens and how, mm -hmm. like, there's such, so many examples of that. It's something also that happens, for example, we discussed la uh, in the last episode, we discussed Bodega Dream and something similar happened, mm -hmm. right? There's a, a level of anti-blackness happening in Bodega Dream. And here I wouldn't say like there's an element of anti-blackness, but there's like a level of a certain level of erasure. Yeah, the, yeah? the not acknowledging directly, mm -hmm. I think, is tantamount to an erasure. Right, so let's bring it all back to the city, right? Because that's the theme of the season. 
Let's Latinx talk New about York that. City. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I was thinking that we maybe we can talk about cultural fragmentation. Yeah. Uh, while New York City is generally recognized as a melting pot, a sancocho of cultures, many instances of cultural fragmentation can be observed in various aspects of life in the city. Uh, Dolores Prida was very aware of this division. Yeah. Uh, one example of cultural fragmentation in New York City is the clustering of ethnic and cultural groups in certain neighborhoods. One example of cultural fragmentation in New York City is the clustering of ethnic and cultural groups in certain neighborhoods. An example presented in Botanica is Harlem or El Barrio as an almost exclusive Puerto Rican and Latinx neighborhood. This clustering of ethnic groups, which promotes cultural retention, as we saw in the play, can also create a sense of isolation and separation between communities, especially when these divisions unveil inequities connected to white supremacy, mm -hmm. to the killing of the buffaloes. Yeah. <laughs> in the play, Mill is affected by this urban fragmentation and what it signifies in terms of systemic destitution. She wishes to overcome it by selling the family building and moving downtown. She initially sees this move as economic mobility and as a move to whiteness insofar as it is a social structure that permits access to power. Another example of fragmentation is the existence of language barriers. In, in New York City, many different languages are spoken, and while English is understood as the lingua franca, not all residents speak it fluently. This can lead to difficulties in communication on an institutional scale and a sense of exclusion for those who do not speak the dominant language. Right. This situation is at the core of Cosa Cantar. The dual woman knows how Spanish holds and expresses her Cuban culture, but it's a, it is a language that is racialized and discriminated against in the city as it signifies social vulnerability. English, on the other hand, is perceived as the language of success and belonging. Yet the possibilities of fitting in only come at the price of linguistic and thus cultural erasure. Yeah. I think this this kind of ties into uh, something I wanted to bring up with the city is this idea of, you know, we've heard the term thrown around like living in the hyphen or living in between, which ironically has a hyphen in it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, you know, New York is one of those places where at times it may be easy to hide from that feeling of in-between. And I think we see this with Milagros before she leaves for college because she talks about never leaving El Barrio. Her whole community is that community that is speaking Spanish, that is engaging in those cultural practices, right? Those fit the identities that she embodied at that point in her life. But after returning from college, it held more of an in-between space for her. She had gone from only El Barrio to New Hampshire, and now she's coming back not only to her family in El Barrio, but to a new life and a potential future job with Chase Manhattan Bank, right? And that already, like, those two spaces within New York create an in-betweenness. And I think New York has always been a place of in-between on a, on a larger scale. Like, sure, within El Barrio, maybe within the Botanica, within her family unit, she felt as though she belonged. She didn't feel in-between. But now that her world has opened up, she feels a little bit differently. And I think uh, there's a great quote from Ruben in the play that that really helps put this into perspective. He tells us, ¿Qué quiere decir? Ser de aquí. Pues pa' mí, ser de aquí es, pues, es mango y strawberries, alcapurrias y pretzels, yemaya y los Yankees. 
Yo no veo la diferencia. What's the big deal? Eso es lo que somos. Brunch y burrandanga. Quiche y arroz con habichuelas. Chase Manhattan y la bolita. Todo depende de cómo empaques tu equipaje, which is a great play on, mm -hmm. <laughs> on the, the translation there. Pero todo es parte de él. Todo es la misma cosa. You see, I decide what it means to be from here. Porque afuera hay muchos que piensan que aunque hayas nacido aquí y te cambies el nombre a Joe o Millie, they think you're not from here anyway. So basically, you know, you may be labeled as outside or in between, but what he's presenting here is that what matters is how you see yourself in relation to this city. And also Ruben is as someone in the play that also like defends that uh the importance of keeping these spaces alive. Yeah, mm -hmm. she, he cares about La Botanica, he cares about the family, he cares about Mili, but uh, he cares about the possibilities of, of transculturation in a healthy way. Mm -hmm. I think that comes into play with the fact that he attended college at Ostos Community College in the Bronx. <laughs> <laughs> he had another CUNY school <laughs> shout out in this season's episode. <laughs> All right, so let's give those recommendations that we promised. Yeah, so today I will recommend the play The Masses Are Asses by New York poet, performer, and playwright Pedro Pietri. The Masses Are Asses is a satirical play that offers a sharp critique of the political and social system that govern Puerto Rican immigrant communities in the United States and the U.S. mainstream perception of revolutionary movements in Latin America and the Global South. The play is set in New York City in the Bronx, but like in Coser y Cantar, the city is more of a state of mind. Mm -hmm. In this case, it focuses on the enclosed life of a couple who never lived their micro apartment and is struggling to survive in the 1970s South Bronx within a hostile environment. The couple in the play build an imaginary world in which they are wealthy, thriving, and ready to critique the lower classes and the wave of left-wing revolutionary movements of the era. They engage in a performance within a performance as a way to avoid the trauma of struggling with issues such as discrimination, extreme poverty, street and gender-based violence, and police brutality. The title of the play, The Masses Are Asses, refers to Pietri's belief that working-class people are often exploited and manipulated by those in power many times with their consent. Pietri uses humor and metafictional tools to criticize the political and social system that perpetuate this exploitation. So this reminds me a lot of the Jose Triana play uh, Noche de las, los Asesinos, uh, where you have the three siblings in the play. They're creating their own plays to escape from the, the realities of the world that they're in and, and pretending that they are one another, pretending that they are each other's parents and, and sort of revealing realities while at the same time trying to to esconder from them right yeah, that yeah, to yeah. hide to hide away from those realities mm -hmm. yeah i haven't read this one or seen it performed yet so i will have to check it out i'm going to talk about la gringa by carmen rivera and actually most of la gringa takes place in puerto rico But it is a play about a young woman from New York who's searching for her identity by visiting her family in Puerto Rico during the holidays. We have the character Mariela Garcia, who arrives on the island with plans to connect with her homeland. 
It's her first trip to the island, but she has an intense love for it, and she even majored in Puerto Rican studies. Which, of course, her family in Puerto Rico is just like, what? <laughs> uh, you know, once she gets to Puerto Rico, she realizes that not everyone there welcomes her with open arms. Many people consider her nothing more than, you know, U.S. North American, una gringa. And she contrasts this with her experiences in New York and how there she's considered Puerto Rican and comes to the conclusion that she's nobody anywhere. So while the play doesn't set in New York, New York is still very much a character in this play. So right? like the New York as a state of mind. Too. Yes, yeah. yes, exactly. As Coming back to that. state of mind, of course. <laughs> yeah. Well, there is one person who does welcome her and supports her during her time on the island, and that is her uncle Manolo. Manolo teaches her that identity isn't based on superficial and external definitions, but rather is something that she has had all along inside herself. Another reason I wanted to recommend this play in particular, you know, it's an Obie Award-winning play, but it is also the longest-running Spanish-language off-Broadway show, and it's been performed at Repertorio Español for the last 27-plus years, so it's still... Casi tres décadas. Yeah, it's still... Uh, happening they usually do like midday performances for mm -hmm. it it's like 11 o'clock during mm -hmm. the week mm -hmm. but uh you can still go see it and yeah. and repertorio is fantastic because they have the the subtitle things on the seat so whether you are going to see a spanish language play or an english language play or a, or a uh, bilingual uh, or as bi we talk that that <laughs> happens uh, throughout latinx exactly yeah. you can go there and you put the subtitles on on your seat and you can actually read the translations yeah. so talking about puerto rican studies uh, a, ch uh, a quick shout out to juan flores and, and and his book the diaspora strike back that precisely talks about what happens yeah with uh, uh the diaspora goes back to the homeland and has like created a scholarship on that <laughs> yeah this is i majored <laughs> in puerto rican studies <laughs> Gracias por acompañarnos. Thanks for joining us for this episode. Let us know what you thought about our coverage of these two plays. We'd love to hear from you. You can always reach out to us on social media or by email. Follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at LatinXVisions or send us an email address at latinexvision at gmail.com. Subscribe to us on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Share us with your friends and family. Subscribe and leave reviews on both Apple and Spotify. Okay, estamos a la escucha. Dale. Until next time. Bye.